You're listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast series. Emile Theodore Coker, A Chance to Cut, by Laura Mazur. Good afternoon, and thanks everyone for being here. Uh, my name's Laura. I am a general surgeon, although currently I work at an education company where I help start Montessori schools. And every once in a while I get to weekend as an amateur surgical historian. And although that latter descriptor does not make it onto my CV, it is the reason I get to be here today. And I'm here today, honestly, because I love telling stories. I was extremely disappointed at some point in childhood to find out that traveling storyteller is no longer a viable career option. So when I do get the chance to come and tell a story that I love, I tend to jump at it. And my favorite stories, or many of them, are from the annals of surgical history. Because it is, of necessity, a history of individuals who dare to do the unthinkable, break every taboo, risk the ultimate consequence, trusting in their own eye, their hand, their knowledge of the physical world. Those are the people whose biographies make up the history of surgery, and one of which I hope to tell today. But biographies are challenging. There's a temptation when telling the story of someone's life to start at the beginning, to start by explaining to you that Emile Theodore Coker was born in 1841, the second oldest in a family of six, son of a railway engineer father and a pietist mother. And this temptation is understandable. It's natural. First, because you want to set the hero of your tale in their time. You'll have a different sense of the man if he was born in 1950s Brooklyn instead of 1840s Switzerland. And it's tempting to start at the beginning, too, because in telling the story of a life, you want it to be a story, a story with a beginning, a middle, an end. But the truth is, before you can care about the beginning, that Emile Theodore Coker's mother was a deeply religious and self-sacrificing woman, or that he was raised in the Swiss capital city of Bern, well, you have to care about Coker. So I like to start biographical stories not at the chronological beginning, with a child who is, let's face it, a ball of potential only because all children are such, but at the climax, the decisive moment, the turning point. That point of highest drama where your English teacher at one point told you that rising action changes to falling action. There's a flaw in that strategy too, of course, because a life isn't a story. Or at the very least, it's not one story. There's no moment in your own life, at least I hope not, where ever after you'll happily concede, yes, I am in the denouement of my life. My climax has passed and I am awash in falling action. Because after that moment, no matter how significant, you still wake up in the morning. Fall in love, kiss your spouse, watch your children walk or fall or graduate. Start new stories. So there are some limitations in telling the story of someone's life. And it's worth acknowledging those limitations. The story of Emile Theodore Coker, like any real person, has complexities beyond those you could create for a character in a novel because he lived for 76 years and not 200 odd pages. And naming a moment of supreme importance in the life of a real individual has limits and probably fundamental ones. But having acknowledged those limits at the outset, I will also say 
This is the story of Emil Theodore Coker, and I'm gonna start the story at its climax, and we'll see what happens next. And for me, the climax of this particular story is a letter about a girl named Maria. It would be tempting, I think, to choose instead the moment in 1909 when Coker took the stage in Stockholm to become the first physician to win the Nobel Prize. But I think the true climax came much earlier because the moment in Stockholm is a moment of recognition, an acknowledgement of accomplishments completed. A climax, a real climax, is fundamentally a moment of choice. The first choice even, the one that enables all the choices that will come after. If there is no choice, there is no triumph. Nothing was at risk and nothing won. But there was a moment of choice for Theodore Coker and it came in the most mundane of forms. Dr. Coker in 1883 was chair of surgery at his hometown hospital in Bern, Switzerland. At 42, He's widely acknowledged as the best technical surgeon in Europe, possibly the world. It's at this height of his career that he receives a message from a general practitioner in a small neighboring town. There's a young woman, Maria Richthal. Does Dr. Coker perhaps remember the patient? She had her thyroid removed by Dr. Coker almost 10 years earlier when she was a child of 11. Since the operation, the family doc informs Coker, She's undergone what he calls, quote, a complete and substantial change in the nature of her character. Before the surgery, she'd been maturing normally. Now, while her younger sister has grown into a blossoming young woman of very pretty looks, the sister operated upon has remained small and exhibits the ugly looks of a semi-idiot. And you can see in the pictures, this is Maria before the operation, the taller of the two sisters and the older, and as the age, her sister begins to develop and grow. Maria has stopped growing. So Maria now, in this picture on the left, is the shorter of the two. It's a strange message. And how would it feel for Coker to receive such a message? To really understand it, we'll need to understand the type of operation Maria had, the state of medical knowledge at the time. But for now, we'll leave Coker where he is. At the height of his career, having already weathered scandals and faced down the conservative opinions of his colleagues to become one of the most respected and admired surgeons of his day. And in this context, he's asked by a rural doc if a set of strange, inexplicable physical and mental changes in one of probably thousands of patients he's operated on in the past decade might be the fault of his work. And I'll ask you to put yourself in his place. Maybe you're not a thyroid surgeon in 1880s Europe, but there's something you do for work, and I hope you do it well. A colleague in your field, but less respected than you, approaches to ask you if you remember one piece of work from a decade ago, and asks, do you think the fact that this family's business failed is because of the financial advice you gave them years prior? in the same manner as you've given financial advice to hundreds of families since? What would you say? How would you feel? Would you entertain the question? Would you be insulted, defensive, angry, 
dismissive? Is any part of you curious? In short, you did something you knew was right. You dotted every I, crossed every T. So how sure are you? So that's the climax, odd as it seems. It's not dramatic at the outset, just a message and a question and a choice. And yet, it's a moment where life hangs in the balance, where two potential futures lie shimmering in the mist, and the world will change on the basis of one reaction, one decision, one offhand or calculated next move. So now we have the climax, the moment of decision. Before we get to the resolution, let's back up and understand how Coker gets to this moment. What kind of man is he when he meets this choice? So what kind of man was Emil Theodore Coker? Well, as I've said, he was born in the capital of Switzerland in 1841. What's happening in 1841? In England, Queen Victoria has just married Prince Philip, and they're about to give birth to Edward VII. In America, Frederick Douglass is on a speaking tour of abolitionist societies, laying the groundwork for the American Civil War that's still 20 years away. Physicians in Boston are experimenting with ether gas as a means of surgical anesthesia, although it won't be used in a person for another five years. Charles Darwin has just returned from the Galapagos and is beginning to write a theory of evolution. And in a middle-class home in Switzerland, Jacob and Maria Coker have just welcomed their second son and named him Emil Theodore. He was a strong student from early childhood, initially drawn to art before being encouraged by his parents to study medicine, graduated from his local university in 1858 at the top of his class, before traveling with a professor and mentor to Zurich, and eventually Berlin to study with some of the more famous physicians of the day. He was actually denied positions at several German labs, because at the time they only accepted German applicants, uh, prompting him to continue his travels to Paris. It turned out to be fortuitous. At the time, German surgeons had fully adapted the theories and techniques of Joseph Lister, pioneer of antisepsis, or sterility. In Paris, on the other hand, surgeons continued to go from dissecting room to operating room without a stopover at the sink. Young Coker was easily able to see the results, a dramatic difference in the rate of post-operative infection. Given that the first antibiotic was not discovered until almost 100 years later, the general outcome of a post-operative infection was rapid death. Coker returned to Switzerland, a staunch supporter of antisepsis, near fanatical about following the best available practices for disinfection. He returns to Bern, his hometown, to finish his training and take up a position at the local hospital. He applied twice for a faculty spot that was denied to him until his students had to petition the Bernese government in his favor. The result was at 30, he became a professor of surgery at the University of Bern. While not the center of medical advancement at the time, and he would eventually have invitations to join the faculty of any university in the world, he repaid their faith in him and stayed at his hometown hospital throughout his career. Today, physicians who are interested in research are often hyper-specialized, focusing not just on one body system or even one disease, but sometimes something as nuanced as one binding site on one protein molecule. 
In the 1800s, it was more common for a physician to have a broad range of interests, but very few had interests or impact as broad as Coker. And this was the era of eponyms. Every time a surgeon or scientist discovered something, he named it after himself. Medical students today, by the way, hate this trend. It is never fun to explain to somebody that they have Charcot-Marie Tooth Disorder, a nerve disorder that has absolutely nothing to do with your teeth, but was named after three separate people, Martin Charcot, Pierre-Marie, and Howard Henry Tooth. <laughs> and we spend hours trying to remember the difference between an amiond hernia, which is actually a hernia that contains the appendix, but is named after a dude named amiond, and a leader's hernia, which was named after a guy named Leader which contains a Meckel's diverticulum, which was named after a guy named Meckel's. But whatever your feelings on the validity of eponyms are, and their annoyance to generations of medical students to follow, they are a way of mapping the impact of the surgeons who came before. And there are few people with as many eponyms, instruments, procedures, techniques, and signs as Coker. While working in a private clinic, he continued to advance his studies in a local morgue experimenting with ways to manipulate the joints. And his first claim to fame was actually a simple three-step method of reducing a dislocated shoulder. It's still a common technique used today, and we still talk about it as the Coker method. He developed a new technique for hernia repair, which is still called the Coker method. Uh, he changed the incision we use to remove a gallbladder, going from a transverse midline, or a up and down midline to a transverse right upper quadrant. This is still known today as the Coker incision. There are about half a dozen others. In an era when surgeons loved naming things after themselves, there are more Cokers in a textbook of anatomy or surgery than almost any other name. So for a young surgeon hired reluctantly on the noisy testimony of students, he quickly rose to prominence and became the Burns Hospital's claim to fame. In his obituary, the British Medical Journal would describe his surgical style as, quote, infinite accuracy, infinite care, infinite patience that gave him results as near to absolute perfection as it is possible for surgery to go. <coughs> and as he worked, he held these standards not just for himself, but for his students and staff. One specific example of his practices and his worldview. Coming out of his European travels, he remained throughout his career adamant about cleanliness and sterility, still a relatively new concept and not universally uh, embraced in all operating rooms. But he demanded fanatically high standards of sterility in his own OR and attributed many of his superior outcomes to this focus. Sometimes, even in his staff though, a patient would develop an infected wound. In which situation, Coker would require that the student or junior physician responsible for the break in sterility stand at the patient's bedside, literally beating his breast and declaring for the ward to hear, I have sinned. And so it was for the early years of his professional career, his reputation growing due to both a creative and innovative approach and a relentless dedication to meticulous, precise care. At the same time, this is still the 1800s, and surgery and medicine is in, if not its infancy, at least its early childhood. And as with a great deal of surgical history, this story is really about a part of the body that everyone agreed you can't touch. 
Later heroes, if you're interested, would question the mandate of don't touch the heart or don't touch the pancreas. But for Coker and his contemporaries, the off-limits organ was the thyroid. The thyroid gland. When healthy, a butterfly-shaped piece of tissue that drapes over the trachea, the windpipe in the neck, just below the skin. You can, if you're gentle, feel your own thyroid beginning about two fingers breadth above the sternal notch right here and pushing ever so gently on either side of your windpipe. When it's healthy, it's barely noticeable, hard to even feel. But when unhealthy, the thyroid can become massively enlarged as a goiter, a disfiguring bulge in the neck that was unfortunately common in 1800s Europe due, although this was unknown at the time, to an iodine deficiency, still common in certain parts of the world today from the same cause. So what does the thyroid do other than get big and ugly if you stop using iodinated table salt? Even today, most college graduates will probably have a hard time recalling the exact function of this often overlooked and humble organ. But you hopefully have at least a vague recollection that it's somehow involved in growth and development. And more fundamentally, you at least have a sense that it does something. In the 1800s, bear with me at this point, because in order to understand the drama, you need to understand the science. So I'm gonna take you on a short detour through an intro bio lesson. Some organs are well understood in 1876, right? Lungs bring in air, Heart, thanks to the work of William Harvey about 150 years earlier, is known to recirculate the blood. Stomach and the digestive tract carry food, make waste. Kidneys create urine. But then there are these delicate, soft, easy to overlook organs. Organs that blush pink in healthy living tissue, but fade quickly to gray or yellow in a cadaver. The thyroid, the pancreas, the adrenal glands. What today we know of as the endocrine system. The endocrine system is actually unique in the body's systems in that it is not directly attached to the things it impacts. I'm gonna say that again for those in the back because how strange and weird is that? These are organs that affect other parts of the body without touching them. That's almost magical in an era before the mechanism, hormones, had been discovered. Here are the body systems for reference. The respiratory system. In a vivisection or dissection of a living animal, scientists can actually see the lungs inflate and deflate as you take a breath. They're physically connected to the trachea, or the windpipe, to the throat, to the mouth, and the nose. The circulatory system. The heart is physically connected to a series of arteries and veins that take blood around the body. GI or digestive system, mouth is connected to the esophagus, the eating tube, connected to the stomach, the small intestine, the large intestine, the rectum. General surgery, as one of my mentors loves to say, is basically plumbing. A lot of what we do even today is rerouting the flow of something. The flow of blood through the vessels if there's a blockage or injury. The flow of food through the intestine if there's cancer or inflammation. We can even reroute the flow of air or of urine. It's all just plumbing, sort of. But then there's the endocrine system. Notice something about this diagram in contradistinction to all of the other symptom systems. None of these organs are connected. 
They lie draped on top of other tissue, delicate and soft. In our first year as, an, as medical students, we spend a semester dissecting a cadaver in the anatomy labs, identifying each organ, each blood vessel, each nerve, and each bone. And we do it with a map that the early surgeons didn't have. And even with that map, the anatomy textbook, the endocrine organs are the ones that some students actually fail to find. No one upon opening the chest has trouble identifying the heart. But upon opening the neck, you can actually fail to see the thyroid. It melts so well into surrounding fat and tissue. Draping softly over the trachea as it does when healthy, it's not obviously connected to anything. It has no duct, no tube to indicate its function. It sits on top of the windpipe, but it's not connected. There's no hole for the thyroid to get air. It's adjacent to the esophagus, but it doesn't receive food. So what does this lump of gray, poorly differentiated tissue even do? Would you believe that in the 1800s, the assumption was not much? As Coker himself put it later, quote, unfortunately, the physiologists know next to nothing about the physiologic significance of the thyroid gland. And this may have been the main reason for surgeons tacitly assuming that the thyroid gland had no function at all. <coughs> Leonardo da Vinci created the first anatomic drawings of the thyroid in 1511. His hypothesis was maybe its purpose was just to hold the windpipe away from the sternum. Given that the thyroid was known to enlarge, become a goiter, an appearance that was obviously pathologic, any symptoms that were associated with thyroid disease were attributed to its overgrown and disordered state rather than its natural function. So you have this lump of tissue in the neck that doesn't seem to do any good and has been known for centuries to get in the way when it becomes overgrown and inflamed. There are actually endocrine surgeons who love to search old artwork for evidence of an enlarged thyroid in classical faces. And a surprising number of goiters at the Smithsonian. So goiters are as old as thyroids, and surgery is as old as homo sapiens. And in the 1800s, we've gotten good enough at surgery to fix a hernia, remove and reroute pieces of the intestine, even repair an aneurysm or abnormal dilation of the aorta. So surely, surely surgeons are removing this overgrown bit of tissue widely believed to be useless at best and cancerous at worst. And they've definitely tried. In 1866, American surgeon Samuel Gross summarized the current opinion on operating upon the thyroid gland when he said, quote, can the thyroid gland, when in a state of enlargement, be removed with a reasonable hope of saving the patient? Experience emphatically answers, no. No sensible man will attempt to extirpate a goiterous thyroid gland. Every step he takes will be envisioned with difficulty. Every stroke of his knife will be followed by a torrent of blood. And lucky will it be for him if his victim lives long enough to enable him to finish his horrid butchery. All surgeons are poets. So people have tried to take out the thyroid gland. A goiter is a life-changing problem for a man or woman in this era, leading not just to difficulty finding a marriage or a job, 
but eventually infection, pain, difficulty swallowing, even trouble breathing. They just have rarely succeeded. As many as 75% of patients undergoing thyroid surgery died on the operating table or soon after from either uncontrolled blood loss or infection. The French Academy of Medicine actually banned thyroid operations entirely in 1850. So why was thyroid surgery so dangerous? And there are really three reasons. It's in part an anesthesia problem. The only anesthetic available right now is short-acting ether, which is better than nothing but has significant limitations, including irritation of the mucous membranes. That means it causes coughing and laryngeal spasm. Might be okay if you're operating on the leg, not great if you're operating on the throat. And it's partly an antisepsis problem. Coker was convinced of the need for a sterile operating room, but not all surgeons were, and antibiotics are still far in the future. And finally, it's an anatomy problem. <coughs> the thyroid, especially when enlarged, is incredibly vascular. Dozens of tiny blood vessels supply the enlarged gland. Today, the options for stopping bleeding range from cautery to hemostatic powders and glues, suture more delicate than a hair, and a choice of any number of hemostatic clamps and forceps. Hemostatic here meaning literally to stop blood, an instrument that keeps a tiny tube closed and prevents blood from leaking out. But none of these op options exist in the late 1800s. At this point, a surgeon's friend is often speed. The less time on the table, the fewer infections, and honestly, the less likely the patient is to simply get up and try and run away. The infamously most deadly operation in history occurred around this time, when British surgeon Robert Liston supposedly operated so quickly when taking off his patient's diseased leg that he amputated the fingers of his assistant as well. This so horrified one onlooker in the gallery that they fainted, falling to their death, both patient and assistant later died of infection, resulting in the only known operation with 300% mortality. <laughs> so when Coker wrote in a letter to a colleague, quote, surgeons who take unnecessary risks and operate by the clock are exciting from the onlooker's standpoint, but they are not necessarily those in whose hands you would by preference choose to place yourself well, it wasn't as incontrovertible a statement as it might sound today. So how does that change? How did thyroid surgery go from horrid butchery to routine procedure? <coughs> I swear I'm not huffing ether. Coker approached the problem by addressing all three of the challenges, anesthetic, antiseptic, and anatomic. Today, when we talk about anesthesia, we, we're actually talking about several different related goals analgesia or pain control, amnesia, blocking of the formation of new memories so you don't remember getting your leg chopped off, muscle relaxation so the muscles aren't jumping and twitching as the surgeon is trying to work, and loss of consciousness. And we have any number of drugs that can create any one of these effects or all of them together. But in Coker's day, there was really only ether, short-acting, inhaled, highly flammable, and irritating to the throat and the lungs both patient and surgeon would often wind up coughing and sometimes vomiting. Not a good look when you're operating on the throat. 
Coker utilized specialized masks to deliver the ether below the level of the throat, below the level of the operation, and eventually later he was able to use compounds that controlled pain locally rather than sought for full loss of consciousness, all of which gained him a much greater degree of control in the operation that allowed him to proceed slowly and deliberately. For antisepsis, as we've discussed, his absolutely rigorous adherence to the best available sterile practices of the day led to an almost zero rate of wound infections in an era, thank you, <laughs> in an era when an infection was akin to a death sentence. But it was his technical advances that really revolutionized the field of thyroid surgery. These came in a wide variety of forms. He changed the type of incision from up and down to across. This is still the incision we use today when we're doing a thyroidectomy, and we still refer to it as a coker incision. He invented new instruments, the coker clamp and the coker forceps, also still used today, to the bane of some medical students, that were hemostatic. That means instead of an instrument meant to delicately grasp tissue without harming it, he created instruments that were actually meant to clamp down and stop the flow of blood. And he was beyond meticulous in his methods. He would write back and forth with some of his colleagues debating the fine points of thyroid surgery, whether to take every tiny blood vessel, if it was important to see all the places where the thyroid was anchored by small ligaments to the windpipe. In everything, he advocated for the importance of the details. His operations, one of his contemporaries wrote, numbered many thousands, and they represented scrupulous and minutely careful technical display. Every tiniest detail was arranged, every difficulty gently overcome. There was no haste, no untidiness, no shedding of one drop of blood that could be spared. The result? The total removal of the thyroid gland, an operation so dangerous it was outlawed, became commonplace. In Coker's hands, the mortality of the procedure dropped from more than 50% to 0.5%. And it's worth noting, that is the same mortality the procedure holds in experienced hands today. So we've come full circle. And hopefully you have a bit more understanding of the circumstances and something of the measure of the man. Coker is meticulous. His standards are so high, he needs to literally invent new tools in order to live up to them. He's seen the impact of his work. He has outcomes no one else can equal, and he's watched mortality rates plummet in his operating room, in his hospital. He's the chief of surgery, close correspondent and confidant to really every notable surgeon of the day, widely acknowledged as a giant in his own time, and presenting his results routinely for admiration and acclaim. And it's in this atmosphere that a local physician has asked him if there's any chance he remembers a girl named Maria. She was one of his early patients. He operated on her in 1874. Before the surgery, she was a happy, healthy child growing up normally. And she did well from the operation. There was no bleeding. There was no infection. She's alive a decade later. And this is an era where success in surgery is defined as getting off the operating table. And for the really ambitious surgeon, getting out of the hospital. And Coker is being told it's 10 years later, and she's not doing well. 
Her growth has been stunted. She's short and heavy. Her intellectual abilities, once normal, are now severely limited. Her face has taken on a heavy and swollen appearance. She's alive, but she's profoundly impacted. And he's asked, is there a chance that your operation caused this change in her? <coughs> Conservative opinion at the time is a definitive no. Others had noticed a possible connection between the thyroid and a collection of symptoms that include growth retardation. But it's rarely reported, sometimes disbelieved or dismissed as a coincidence. And in those who did see a connection, the assumption is that it's the end stage of the original thyroid disease. In other words, the thyroid was clearly diseased, it had become a goiter. Taking it out should have prevented these symptoms. If you see them anyway, it means you operated too late. Nothing you could have done. Claude Bernard described the state of the knowledge in this way in 1879, quote, we know absolutely nothing about the function of the thyroid. We do not even have an idea of its utility and of the importance it may have, for its removal has not told us anything about this, and anatomy alone remains absolutely silent. So the thyroid is widely believed to be useless in health and dangerous only in a goiterous state. And its removal, if technically possible, should be pursued. So how does Coker feel when he gets this message? And what does he do? You've seen him spending hours in the dissecting lab, manipulating the shoulder to develop a new strategy for treating dislocation. You've seen him reconsider every single step of a thyroid removal, leaving nothing unchanged, unimproved upon, from incision to instruments to approach. You've seen his intense and complete sense of responsibility, his students standing at their patient's bedside, being forced to tell the world that a break in sterility is akin to a mortal sin. And here he stands at the climax of this story with an offhand message and a request to recall one patient among so many, a young girl from years ago. He told the story later in his own words. Quote, it was the influence of just one case on whom I had operated in 1874 and about whom a doctor mentioned that the girl in question had since undergone a complete and substantial change in the nature of her character. This was so important to me that I now took all pains to see the girl with my own eyes. I was astonished to a great extent by the conspicuous looks of the individual in question. I immediately sent invitations to all of my patients on whom I had operated for goiter, asking them to present themselves for examination. This is what's known as a single surgeon case series. Today, it's the lowest form of clinical evidence. It's one step above an anecdote because it's really a series of anecdotes. Only here's the thing. No one had ever done it before. No one had ever looked back to review their cases for long-term outcomes. The goal of a surgeon was to finish the operation. His patients left the hospital. For all Coker knew, they were happy and healthy and living their lives. To ask them, sometimes years later, to come back and see how they were getting on, 
is an appreciation of physiology that is completely novel in medical history to this point. It's also an epistemological landmark in a field that needs epistemology so badly. It is the recognition that what was thought absolutely true yesterday, the thyroid does not have a necessary function, must immediately be called into question upon the appearance of new data. So this is the climax for Coker. It is the moment when he questions the state of his knowledge, when he values so highly the quest for truth that he is willing to interrogate his own life's work. The surgeon is a strange type of person. He needs to be willing to stake his livelihood and someone else's life on his knowledge of the world. I tell medical students sometimes that there are no subjectivists in the operating room. Anyone who has held a scalpel knows you cut or you don't. The structure bleeds or it doesn't. It is a thing, definite, and the consequences are quickly apparent. You learn to trust your senses and your conclusions. You need to trust your own mind, because if you don't, you become paralyzed, unable to act. Surgeons, it's said, are sometimes wrong, but never unsure. So what happens when the state of knowledge changes? When what seemed absolutely true yesterday is called into question today? And that was the choice that Coker faced. And the choice he made was swift and immediate. The new information triggered immediate action and a search for understanding that was as deliberate and meticulous as every other part of his professional career. In early 1883, Coker sent invitations to his last 100 patients. He was able to examine or receive reports on 60 of them. Of the 53 still living, 28 had only a partial removal of the gland. These patients, he reported, quote, enjoy the best of health and are very happy with and grateful for the success of the operation. The results in 34 patients who had a total removal of the gland were entirely different. Quote, of the patients who presented themselves for examination, only two showed unchanged or improved general status. This stark summation represented a detailed, in-depth, and comprehensive examination, including blood tests, eye exams, consultations with a number of colleagues from a variety of specialists. The patients had experienced a slow physical and mental decay in the months and years following total removal of the thyroid. They had puffy hands and faces, decreased height, pale skin. He called the disease cachexia strumapriva, or decay resulting from lack of a goiter later renamed as the somewhat easier to say, myxedema. <coughs> On April 4, 1883, Coker reported his findings to the German Society of Surgery in Berlin. It was a long lecture, including a 15-page description of his findings and theories. He concluded that the thyroid clearly has a crucial function, describing it somewhat poetically as the task to, quote, paralyze the influences which produce stupidity. He published his list of patients. He described each of their features and outcomes in detail. And he must have felt much like his students at the bedside of a wound infection, 
desperate to beat his breast and exclaim, I have sinned. In technical terms, Coker wrote, we have certainly learned to master the operation for goiter. We can deal with bleeding and prevent loss of speech. But something else happened. Removal of the thyroid gland has deprived my patients of what gives them human value. I have doomed people with goiter, otherwise healthy, to a vegetative experience. Many of them I have turned to cretins, saved for a life not worth living. Ironically, it was probably Coker's unparalleled precision that allowed him to so clearly demonstrate the impact of the gland. Other surgeons attempting to remove the thyroid were less absolute in their anatomy or their methods. Theodore Billroth, an equally famous name in the history of surgery, was one of Coker's mentors and worked with him on some of the anatomic and antiseptic advancements that enabled safe thyroid surgery. But when he followed Coker's example and reviewed the results of his own operations, he found a much lower incidence of myxedema. <coughs> William Stewart Halstead, in his book on the history of goiters, explained the difference thus. Quote, I have pondered the question for many years and conclude that the explanation probably lies in the operative methods of the two illustrious surgeons. Coker, neat and precise, operating in a relatively bloodless manner, scrupulously removed the entire thyroid gland doing little damage outside the capsule. Bill Roth, operating more rapidly and, as I recall, with less regard for the tissue and less concern for hemorrhage, might easily have left fragments of the thyroid behind. And it's worth pausing on that. His precision, his competence, his unflinching dedication to excellence his very merits are what surfaced his error. Coker spent the rest of his career searching for an explanation for his findings. His ideas on the physiology and pathology of the thyroid gland caused controversy, as any new ideas must do. He wouldn't discover thyroid hormone. That happened after his death. But he did experiment with oral and injected extracts of thyroid tissue as a treatment, an early precursor to both transplantation and hormone replacement therapy and he was adamant in his stance that surgeons not remove the whole gland. Importantly, he continued to operate, and he continued to operate on the thyroid. He completed more than 5,000 thyroid surgeries in his career, after his discovery removing only half or three quarters of the gland and noting that this partial removal resulted in no long-term consequences. And he remained a giant in his field, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in 1909 in recognition of both his technical advances and his work on thyroid physiology that eventually did lead to discovery of the thyroid hormone. Today, hormone replacement is commonplace for hypothyroidism, and many types of thyroid cancers are completely curable with a total resection. And for that, we thank Coker. And as we thank him, it's worth reflecting on the nature of his accomplishments and his contributions to medical science. In his middle age, at the height of his career, Coker was faced with the possibility that his life's most important work up to that point, the technical perfection of thyroid surgery, was causing harm. And we know what Coker did as a result 
But how must he have felt? And maybe better to ask, how would another man feel? Because while it's true that the measure of a man is in his actions, his emotions are the instantaneous account of all the decisions he's made before. So while I can't tell you what Coker felt when he received that letter, I think there's a reasonable supposition based on his actions. It would be so understandable to picture someone responding with fear, with anxiety, the precursors of guilt. I like to think that's not what he felt. I like to think he felt a tingle of discovery, a desire to understand more, an urgency that could not be denied. Coker's story is often told as one of achievement, of advancement, and of innovation. The timeline of discovery after discovery, invention after invention, is a testament to meticulous attention to detail and a creative mind. But his real contribution, although it carries no eponym, is to medical epistemology. The simultaneous ability to be so confident in your knowledge that you will stake lives upon it, and so aware of its limitations that you will question it in an instant on a word. And this is the true legacy, I think, of Emil Theodore Coker. Because all of us, in our own ways, are doing new work, pursuing new insights, developing new products. We all build a life upon our past, building new knowledge on past knowledge. In medicine, every new, pro every new practice gives rise to new complications. In technology, potential innovations create new challenges. In culture, new movements surface new weaknesses. In each of our lives, in our careers, and our relationships, there will likely come a day when we discover that a premise or practice we've built our work and lives upon contains an error. And what will we do? Will we cower in fear of uncertainty, bowing our heads, shaken by the depth and breadth of the mistake? Will we lose ourselves in the mea culpas and the comeuppances of those around us who do not know us? Will we forswear progress and turn to telling cautionary tales of human fallibility? Or will we pretend away the truth? Will the possibility of a questioning, an idea on which you've built your life, feel so overwhelming that you double down on prior views because they're too integral to your self-image to change? Will you succumb to the temptation to rationalize, disproportionately seek out supporting evidence only? or devote yourself to explaining how your error was actually understandable, honest, not as bad as it seems. My hope for you, for myself, for all of us, is that we can rise to the standard that Coker set. That we will love the truth with such devotion that nothing will be higher to us than honoring that beloved that we will neither embrace the doubt and uncertainty of those who lose the will to know, nor the blind faith and surrender to illusion of those who feign knowledge, but will remain both humble before the facts and arrogant in our quest to know. Coker's story is the story of human progress. It is the story of a fallible creature 
who through exacting methods, unremitting toil, and moral courage, finds truth. And I'll say one more thing before I close the curtain. It's easy, at least I think so, to admire Coker for his excellence, his commitment to truth in action that overrode all other considerations. For that virtue alone, he is a hero, and he deserves every accolade history has laid upon him. But it's worth noting one more moral to this story. His victory was not just a victory of character. It was not only the inner triumph of a great soul. Even looking back with hindsight, it would be easy to see this story as a man willing to sacrifice external reward for inner worth, to fall on his sword out of a strict code of ethics, death before dishonor, as it were. But as your final takeaway, notice that that's not what happened here. This is a story about inner self-worth, but it's also a story of existential success. It was his strength, his, his meticulous technique, that led to the consequences of myxedema for his patients in the first place. And when he recognized that possibility, it would be true to say that he was willing to take on any censure, including his own, in order to pursue true understanding. But it would be wrong in any sense, moral or practical, in intent or outcome, to call his actions a sacrifice. His virtues in the operating room made thyroid surgery technically possible. His virtues expressed in a different form, in response to a letter and a query, made the field of endocrinology possible. His success was both spiritual and material, fundamentally linked. His courage to keep to his convictions at the moment of greatest doubt is what led directly to his most impressive discoveries and his greatest material achievements and rewards. At the end of his life, Coker left this world in triumph. His devotion to truth rewarded him with a long career of successes. He died at 76 when he took to his bed with what seemed like a stomach bug after a full day in the operating room. He was still chair of surgery, still at his hometown hospital. He was the father of two sons, one of whom followed in his footsteps and assisted in his work. He was the recipient of every prize society could offer, up to and including a Nobel. He used the money from that prize to start the Coker Institute for Research in Bern, which still stands today. And while I can't tell you for sure how he felt, reflecting back on his time, I hope, and feel reasonably sure of the hope, that he felt the satisfaction of a life well lived, the deep, powerful satisfaction of a world that responded the way we always hope it will, with recognition for a greatness that offered no quarter, accepted no sacrifice, a greatness that saw as its due and its duty, technical perfection and fundamental truth. And for that, the life of Emil Theodore Coker is a story worth knowing. Thank you.
Thank you. Hi, um, <coughs> amazing lecture, spot on. Uh, I liked what you said about uh, the starting the bi biography, a biographical story at the climax. I'm also a biographer, and so that really hit with me. I was wondering uh, what sources you used for to know about his life, uh, other biographies, <coughs> and whether where, if they started at the climax, and if not, were you dissatisfied with that? or? Such a good question, and I'm always unsatisfied with the uh, biographies of medical heroes because they're never as dramatic as I think they should be. Um, there is surprisingly little in English on Coker. Uh, there are no biographies written about him as far as I have been able to find, um, and a lot of the work is obviously not in English as his primary language, you know, actually for most of his academic work was German. Um, and so the primary sources I've, all, I've accessed all in translation, um, his writings, his letters back and forth with, um, with some of the other notable surgeons of the day, his you know, acceptance speech for the Nobel, um, and then some secondary sources as well. Uh, a lot of journals of surgery will include every few years a two-page you know, homage to Coker, um, and, and they usually leave out the parts that I find most interesting. They'll talk, you know, in detail about his technical advances on the gland, um, but surprisingly little time is spent uh, on the fact that he really introduced the concept of long-term outcomes in surgery and a physiologic rather than anatomic approach to surgery, right? The idea that what you're doing could have impact beyond plumbing. That's awesome. Thank you very much. Thanks for a very interesting talk. When you spoke last year, you explained that in the development of surgery, going back hundreds or thousands of years, animals were often the subject to develop techniques. <coughs> the question is, clearly no one thought of perhaps removing the th uh, thyroid or other endocrine glands of animals and looking at the long-term consequence. So I wondered when mm. the field of endocrinology developed, is that a technique that was used to look at maybe shorter-lived animals to see m more quickly what the effect of yeah. removing glands was? Do you know if, it's if a good that question. played any role? Um, it's a good question. There are a couple things to say in response to that. The first is, you know, people, uh, looked at animals as anatomic models for thyroid dissection and removal, but it really wasn't, it, it was really um, a mindset shift that was needed. Surgeons weren't thinking about physiology. You know, there was no such thing as the endocrine system. There was no such thing as hormones, right? So the endocrine system, as, as most of us know, impacts tissues far away by releasing chemical messengers called hormones into the bloodstream that go affect their target organ. That was, I mean, that was as hand-wavy and mystical an explanation as, you know, the, the four humors. There would be no physical evidence of that to suggest it was valid. And so um, it, I don't think it occurred to people in part because they weren't thinking in those physiologic terms. Now, once 
endocrinology originated and hormones were conceived of and we started thinking in these terms, uh, we certainly have animal models um, and a lot of early hormone replacement therapy. While the symptoms of removing an endocrine gland are different in animals than in people, um, a lot of early hormone replacement therapy came from horses and pigs and other animals. Thanks. Hi. Um, so this little butterfly that sat on the windpipe, it, reduce, uh, it releases thyroid, right? Thyroid hormone. Okay, so how does that get into the bloodstream? Does it just seep into the windpipe? No, so the, the organ is attached to blood vessels. So everything is attached to blood vessels. Um, and so the hormones are released directly into veins to go back to the heart and to be recirculated to the body. It's just that most organs have, like if you, if you think of it as a surgeon does, what would I have to control in order to take out an organ? You usually think about three structures, right? If you want to take out a kidney, there's an artery giving it blood, a vein taking blood away, and then there's another tube that takes away the urine because a kidney functions to make urine. A gallbladder has the blood supply and then it has a duct which secretes bile. That's the third tube which sort of controls its function. And so the thyroid and, and the endocrine organs are these abnormal organs that while they do receive blood, even your muscles and your skin need blood, they don't have a tube to indicate how are you impacting another organ? What is the substance you create? Uh, and until the discovery of hormones, there wasn't an explanation. So what did they think this did? And when did they figure out what it did? I mean, really, with Coker, you know, the, the prevailing theory was the thyroid did nothing in a state of health. Um, and Coker's reports on the fact that removing the thyroid led to all these symptoms, he was one of the first, not the very first, but certainly the loudest and the most consistent, to say, you guys, I think the thyroid does something. Mm. And, and the way he described it was, it, it paralyzes the, the sort of substances that would cause stupidity, right? So he, he didn't have a mechanistic explanation, um, but he was one of the first voices to say, pretty sure this thing has a function and maybe we shouldn't just take it out until Thank we know you. more. My question is non-medical. Um, I hope you've read Ibsen's Enemy of the People. I have. Great, because that's <laughs> my question, and is whether... That was an easy one. <laughs> Good. Well, I'm not done. Yeah. Oh, all right. <laughs> um, all right. Um, whether uh, they had a relationship, whether Ibsen knew about this, because they're mm -hmm. contemporary um, to each other. So do you have any evidence of that? I, I don't have any idea if Ibsen knew particularly this story. But this is the history of medicine, right? And, and to some extent, it's the history of innovation. It's, um, you know, anyone coming out against the popular opinions of the day is going to face doubt and disbelief and censure and some degree of criticism from a relatively conservative um, field. You know, I think it is a it is a recurring tale, but I don't know for sure if if Ibsen knew this particular story. Thanks. That was beautiful and moving. I really appreciate it. Um, I have kind of a meta question about it. So um, I've read a fair bit about the thyroid just because I have to take some of those hormones myself. But um, I've never seen anything about the story or um, 
you mentioned some of the source material being sparse. I'm just curious, um, where do you think the right place to ideally get that sort of material is? Is it like in science class, in history, in progress studies? <coughs> Curious what you think the ideal is there. I think in all of the above. Um, I think you know what's exciting and what I love about sort of the progress study movement and what Jason is doing is really every field has these stories hidden within it, right? There are there are such exciting tales of people who who moved the field forward, and and many of them are not widely told. And you know this happens to be my field and my little niche area where. I've dug into a specific subset of heroes, um, but I think they exist everywhere. And I think having that individualistic, almost hero-worshipping bent to history, wherever you can bring it in, is a positive. Thanks. Uh, in the material uh, that you read uh, pre-Coker's discovery, uh, they referred to the thyroid as a gland. Now, I understand a gland being an organ that produces a hormone. <coughs> what did they think glands were? Yeah, I, I don't know the etymology of the word. It's a good question. But today we talk about glands as either exocrine or endocrine. It's just a, an organ that produces a substance that has a chemical impact on another part of the body. Exocrine is direct impact through a tube, a duct, Endocrine is from afar, um, so it's you know it's one of a number of glands, pancreas, adrenal, salivary. But um, but I don't know the etymology of the word. I'll have to look it up. It's a good question. Thank you for the talk. This was also just so interesting. Um, so I particularly like the line where you said that you know there are no subjectivists in the operating room. So I was just wondering where Coker got his philosophical ideas from, if you know. <laughs> and it's Christianity. He was extremely religious. Um, his mother was deeply religious, uh, and he he took that throughout his life. And so his. His philosophy came from pietism and, and offshoots of Protestantism, um, but was sort of morphed into that Protestant work ethic um, and very life-centered. Um, but it, it, he's pretty explicit in his writings that it comes from Christianity. Thank you. Do you know if we've gotten past this, uh, like the mistake that he rectified? Is there anything in surgery today where we are still making the same epistemological, epistemological error? Yeah, <laughs> I think that's actually the answer. Um, for those that didn't hear, he said, we'll find out tomorrow. Um, I, I don't know if the, no, I don't know if this is going to answer the actual question you're asking, so push back if this is sort of a dodge. Um, when I first started medical school, one of my first classes, the full freshman class, we sat in big auditorium, and we had a professor stand up and say, uh, welcome to medical school. We're going to teach you a lot in the next four years. About 50% of what we teach you is wrong. We just don't know which 50% yet. And everybody laughed. And I was sitting in the back going, <gasps> and I was completely horrified. <laughs> um, and that was not my view of the world. And it's probably an over-exaggeration. But now there's this expectation that 
we will be constantly turning over old knowledge and finding errors and finding mistakes and finding, you know, um, incomplete explanations. That doesn't mean it's easy, right? Like, there's still people who dedicate a career to one theory of, you know, protein folding or cancer biology, and it is very challenging and difficult when faced with evidence that that theory might be wrong. So it is, it is certainly not easy, uh, but medicine as a field is aware of that march of progress. Is that, how does that do? All right, thank you. Question uh, from a layman, non-medical professional. You destroyed my curiosity. Can you give a brief explanation of what's the function, known function now for the hormone released by the thyroid, short of preventing stupidity? <laughs> yeah, so thyroid hormones have a wide range of impacts, uh, largely on growth and development, but also on your metabolism overall. So uh, one of the reasons that the effects were so drastic in Maria was that she lost her thyroid at 11. Um, and so hypothyroidism or lack of thyroid hormone certainly causes similar impacts if it's severe in adulthood, but the impacts are much more drastic the younger you are um, because it has a really profound impact on your ability to grow normally, to metabolize, um, brain development, really development overall. It has a wide variety of impacts on almost all of your cell types. You've mentioned a couple of times the phenomenon of more and more extreme specialization of surgeons mm -hmm. and medical professionals, and I was curious what your opinion on that is in general, like whether it's limiting or enabling <coughs> or sort of a mix. That is um, controversial, depending on who you ask. Uh, one of my mentors, a guy named Fisher, was sort of the last of the great general surgeons, or at least we used to talk about him as that. He was a trauma surgeon at Grady Memorial, where I did my medical school. Um, he, uh, he used to walk around with a scrub cap that had four stars on it, because he was the four-star general of the hospital, because surgeons are crazy. Um, but he, he could do everything. I mean, there was nothing this guy couldn't do. He was 40 years into his career, and he'd spent 40 years you know, on battlefields and in an inner-city hospital. Um, but there was nothing he couldn't do. And so when he retired, which... By the way, his retirement job is he's now chair of surgery somewhere in Indiana, <laughs> retired. He's like 76. Um, when he retired, he went on a retirement tour of all of the major surgical conferences in the country, giving a talk called General Surgeon as Superhero, which is a talk only he can give because he was kind of a superhero for many of us. Um, and and he, he would argue, and, and a lot of people in his generation would argue that there is something very wrong with the super specialization of surgeons and you need to be able to um, handle what comes up. And, and, and there's definitely truth to that, right? There needs to be sort of a more general appreciation of technique and anatomy. Um, and what he didn't tell anyone during that talk is that he'd actually had a vascular fellowship. So he himself was in part able to handle everything because he had gotten some specialization. And the disease processes are becoming more complex. Patients are becoming sicker, and the types of operations are becoming more numerous. So, you know, um, even 30 years ago, you had to know how to take out, uh, you know, how to fix a hernia with two techniques. 
both open, make an incision, you put the mesh this way or you put the mesh this way or you close it with suture, done. Today, there's half a dozen techniques. You need to know how to do it laparoscopically, robotically. Some things are done endoscopically. And so with the body of knowledge constantly expanding, there's a need for specialization. And where you draw the line is where people get into fights. Thank you. Long-winded answer. Following the question this gentleman asked and that you gave the answer about the medical community knowing that they're <coughs> wrong and that they really want to get to the truth so they can you know, do a good job and fix everybody. I've noticed a, a, a trend in the last two, three years with the coronavirus and everything. Fauci is lord of science. And he's declared himself so. He's the lord. He is science. He's said so. Medical community obviously questioning all the time any scientist or doctor worth their salt is always going to be questioning what's going on. We add to that that we see on, on, on Twitter and Facebook, the social media will censor anybody who opposes Fauciism and, and require that it not be spread. So I haven't seen a lot of the medical community pushing back on that and, and getting together as a group and saying, you can't censor scientific questioning. And it just goes on. What is, do you have a view on that or have you? Noticed what I've noticed? Um, I have lots of views on that. <laughs> uh, and recommend that you ask Amish as well for his views. But um, it, it gets complicated when you combine science and politics, and, and especially social policy. Uh, and so I, I, I can't necessarily speak for the scientific or medical community overall, but it depends what you're pointing to, right? It depends whether or not there's actually scientific conclusions that are being called into question. And, and you know, I think there was an immense amount of debate at conferences, in journals, and uh, on social media about interpretation of statistics and mechanism of the virus. Um, you know, what was really cool for us was we saw a lot of things happening on social media about best practices for tre treating severe disease, right? We were, we were sharing proning techniques in the ICU and, you know, we changed what we did based on what they were learning in Italy. Uh, so there was a lot of exchange of medical information. It's different when it's a question of policy um, because a lot, a lot gets muddied and a lot well, more. But do you think it's okay ever to censor that kind of thing? Is, is, is it bad for people to be able to question it openly whether they're right or wrong? And I feel a little bit like you're asking me when I stopped beating my wife. Obviously, I'm not a fan of censorship. Um, it, do I think private platforms like Facebook and Twitter should have the ability to control what's on them? Potentially, I would have to think more about it before I gave you an intelligent answer. In a specific case, do I think private platforms can censor? No, I think that's something that the government does. Do I think censorship happened at any point during the COVID pandemic? Honestly, I don't even want to comment because it probably won't be an educated opinion. Okay, good. Thank you. Hi. It's, it's obvious from listening to your talk today and the one you gave last year that you really have a real appreciation for uh, medicine and surgery. So I'm wondering why you've moved on from that. <laughs> um, 
My research when I was in surgery was all in medical education. Uh, so I, when I was in medical school, began to get really disillusioned with the education I was getting and the experience I was having, and I really struggled with it. And I'll be honest, it started that first day in our freshman lecture hall uh, when I was shocked to hear that, you know, 50% of what we learned might be false. And, and to be honest, it caused a pretty dramatic shift in my worldview um, that led me towards more of a research career, um, that led me to rethink a lot of things. And, and I really struggled with the nature of the education we were given. And as I got into residency, I struggled more. Um, I wasn't completely satisfied with the way we trained surgeons. I was frustrated. Um, and I, I got to a point where I thought, I either have to quit or I have to think I can make this better. And so I spent two years doing medical education research. I ran a simulation center. I got a master's in education. And I really went all in on trying to find a path to change the way we educate medical students and physicians. Um, and I really loved that work. And I really sort of found my people in the education space. Um, and as I finished training and became a faculty, uh, became staff at University of Michigan, um, I found that I was frustrated by two things. One was the fact that the students I was getting, who are some of the best and brightest, right? Like They have done well on every test. They have passed every interview. They are top students in the country. They're now at a, at a top surgical program. Really struggled to function in the real world, right? Really struggled with knowing how to think. Um, and it felt almost too late. They're in their 20s at the time I got them. And so I was both becoming increasingly worried about the education prior to reaching my operating room and frustrated with my potential scope of impact. Uh, feeling like I could make a difference for the students in my OR or in my classroom, potentially the residency program I was impacting, or even one day a medical school, um, but that the, the fundamental problems would go untouched. And so I was, I was in a real crisis of conscience uh, going through COVID, and it was at that time that I was doing some consulting for higher ground education, which is where I now work, which is an organization that runs and operates Montessori schools, and really falling in love. Um, and an opportunity came to take a full-time role, and it was crazy, because of course I would not do that, because I've just spent the last decade training to be a surgeon, and now I'm finally in that role. Um, and it was crazy, and I would never have taken it. And the more I thought about it, the less crazy it became. Um, and I, I got to the point where I thought, this isn't an opportunity that's gonna come twice. And life is short. And so I took a gamble. And uh, so far, it's paid off, and I'm having a lot of fun. You mentioned, you mentioned about table salt having iodine or iodide. <coughs> um, and yeah. I've been concerned over the last like, 15, 20 years that sea salt seems to be so popular everywhere, but I don't think it has iodine. And I don't yeah. want to have that. But it's everywhere. 
<laughs> it's actually completely true. So table salt does not naturally have iodine. It's supplemented. It was a public health initiative to reduce the incidence of goiter and hypothyroidism, and it was very effective. And we've actually seen an increase in the rates of goiter in this country about two decades ago um, with the increasing popularity of sea salts. So yes, this is actually a thing that's happening. Now, most of us get plenty of iodine from our food because we have a relatively um, balanced diet. And if you eat any processed food, you're getting iodinated salts mm. in that foodstuffs, even at restaurants. So it's not a huge worry, um, but we've seen an uptick. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a good identification and a real one. And so that little butterfly, when you get a goiter like those, I'm obsessed about this little butterfly. But the pictures you were showing, is that the butterfly swollen up like a bowling ball? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. It goes from, from real little to real big. Um, they're not all that dramatic. You know, I've taken out goiters that are just fat moths, maybe. Um, but that picture you saw where it's so big and swollen, yeah. Ooh. Let's see. Not showing you; it's just showing me. Um, but that—that's the—that's the thyroid. It can grow out. It can grow up. It can grow behind the sternum and press on the heart, which makes it really hard to take out. You mentioned that recently you've you've been involved with students who are the best and the brightest. They passed all their tests uh, brilliantly, and yet you had the sense that you had you were reaching them too late. And I wonder, can you ex give an e example or two of things that they did or said that led you to that conclusion? Yeah, that's a good question. And, and the people I'm referring to who, by the way, I include myself in this group, right? Like, I feel like I got to college not knowing how to study. I got to medical school with very few coping mechanisms. And, and I think many of us have had this experience. So, you know, we... Uh, we, we build ourselves in our 20s, but wouldn't it be nicer if some of that work could have happened earlier? Um, and, and so I'm referring to medical students and residents you know, at, at some of the top programs in the country. And so I think about, let me think of some examples. Some of it is sort of emotional coping skills, and, and some of it is the ability to integrate. You know, I, I, I'm remembering this one student who would take every topic as sort of a list to memorize, like a, a vocab lesson, which is so often how science is taught in school. Like, how many of you remember science classes that were basically just a list of vocab, right? Like, here are all the parts of the cell, and you just memorize all the names, and you know, mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell, does this mean anything to any of us, right? But we all have that catchphrase in our head. Um, and, and she would approach every topic, she's super bright, uh, she, I think she gotten like a perfect score on, on MCAT and every other test. But she was always just memorizing the list. And I remember it came out one time when I had her in a clinical skills course. And I was trying to get her, we, we were talking about appendicitis. And she knew so much about appendicitis. She knew where the appendix was on the intestines. She knew that the McBurney incision, another eponym, was right here, and that McBurney point was right here. Uh, she knew um, all the steps of the operation to take out the appendix. She knew how the appendix got inflamed. And when presented with a patient with pain right here, 
with a GI complaint could not reach the diagnosis of appendicitis because all of these pieces of knowledge sort of floated in her head as a list. And, and it was surprisingly common, right, that the ability to take these disparate pieces and put them together and apply them to a real situation was, was really, really challenging. And it was, it was an interesting need in some of the classes to, you, you sort of saw people have that aha moment where they started to put things together and it was like, oh, I can access the information that I've stored in all of these places to answer a real world problem. Um, but that, that was always a process with, with many of my students that was interesting. Thank you for your talk. Um, I'll apologize first, this is not a fact or database question, so please feel free to check my premise. But uh, I'd like to think I'm pretty privileged and I have a variety of friends and family members that um, have a variety of careers. And one of the things that always st stuck out with um, a particular group of friends are friends in medicine, doctors. <coughs> and the fact that uh, I don't recall having a lot of conversations about who their heroes are, like what hmm. drove them into medicine and whatnot. So I want to get your thoughts on that. So check my premise. Is that a reflection of what you've experienced or we can apply larger, larger to society at number two? How can I have more interesting conversations with doctors? Thank you. Well, you should hang out with me, obviously, for number two. Um, I actually think that a lot of physicians love medical history, and surgeons in particular love the history of our field. Uh, I actually know about Coker. Like The way I discovered this was not in a classroom, but because one of my professors when I was in medical school uh, used to love to pimp on surgical history questions. Pimp questions are questions peppered at you on the wards or in the operating room that can be about anything. Um, anatomy, physiology, what music is playing in the room, which I would usually get wrong, uh, or history. And I had a, a professor at attending who loved to ask, name the nine surgeons who've won the Nobel Prize. So I learned all nine surgeons who've won the Nobel Prize. <laughs> If you invite me back for eight more years, I'll tell you the other eight. Um, spoiler alert, two were Nazis. Yeah, uh, Less admirable. One was really a Nazi. One was just German during World War II, so we give him a pass. Um, but no, I, I think there's a real love of medical history. You know, one of the things that happened every year, one, last year I gave a talk on William Harvey, and one of the reasons I love William Harvey is because there was a medical historian at my medical school who every year would get dressed up in period garb and deliver William Harvey's 1616 famous lecture uh, in full to a packed house every year. So. Not everybody, but I, I, I think there's a pretty widespread appreciation for and love of the history of our field. Uh, it's just how you interpret the stories, you know, is of course, to some extent, representative of your personal philosophy and outlook. As I recall from your talk last year, wasn't that like an all day long lecture or something? <laughs> it was. Maybe he did the condensed version? He did, he did yeah, a condensed okay. version. That he did not, a portion. Fair enough. You, that, wasn't, yes. that wasn't my question. He did not speak all day. Uh, <laughs> so this was fascinating. Thank you. I wonder if you have any other examples of this pattern of someone who realized that some work they were doing or promoting might be harmful mm. in some way and responded to it with honesty and integrity, that same kind of heroism. For my work, I'm interested in collecting uh, examples like this. 
Yeah, let me think if I can come up with any on the spot. There definitely are, and I can definitely think about it and get back to you with a list. Let me see if any occur to me. Um, you know, the, the other sort of recurring pattern is somebody who sort of medical, the medical community doesn't believe, and then they persevere, 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 believing, 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 you know, accumulating evidence, sticking to their guns, and then the medical community comes around and recognizes, oh, you did something great in the first place. Um, th this one is a little less common, right? Like, not just the, the world doesn't see your virtue or your truth as, as quickly as you would like, um, but that you are actually confronted with an error and the need to, to respond to it. Let me get back. I, I don't have any off the top of my head, but that there are, so I'll, I'll think about it. One thing just occurred to me, um, possibly in the history, and specifically since you know so much about history of surgery, cancer, I've heard some uh, story, I, I recall some stories of surgeons who were working on uh, removing, I mean, some really drastic surgeries for certain types of cancer, and then, you know, they got really yeah. good at doing the surgery, but it wasn't actually curing the cancer. That's true. I mean, there are definitely examples of that, of, yeah, there are definitely examples of that. I'm trying to think of individual people who stand out. I mean, even more recently, there have been things that have come to prominence in surgery and then have been proven harmful later, right? Um, I, I did a lot of foregut surgery, and so we're always pointing to different techniques of putting foreign bodies around the stomach or the esophagus um, as not generally leading to good results, and we've tried it in several iterations. Um, different types of hernia repairs that come in and out of favor. Um, but whether or not they're, you know, I, I don't necessarily know the story of how the individuals involved responded, or at least I'm not coming up with one off the top of my head. It's an idea for your talk next year. Thanks. Okay, thank you everyone. Thanks for coming. Thanks for listening to the Ayn Rand Institute Live podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You can also find us on YouTube. If you like this content, please share or leave us a review. For more information, go to aynrand.org.